do this, stop that, go over there, give me that, get away. None of that ever works. Eat your food, go to bed, brush your teeth, get undressed, take your shoes off, put your coat on. That never works for any neurodevelopmental child, regardless of the status. But for children with neurodevelopmental differences, I hate the word disabilities, but in some context, you have to use them. They require connection much more. Because in my experience, children on the spectrum have been uh, violated in their heart. Their spirits have really been violated. Something has changed their safety. How is it possible for a parent of a child with autism to become the superhero their child needs now? I'm Len. And I'm Cass. When our son was diagnosed with moderate to severe autism, we went all in. We spent over a decade learning everything we could on how we could transform to help our son thrive. And guess what? He's doing it. This year, he ran for class president. Each week on this podcast, we will be sharing the secrets needed for you to become the superhero your child needs. If you want to learn how to tap into your innate superpowers to help your child thrive, visit AutismParentingSecrets.com. Hello, and welcome to Autism Parenting Secrets. I am so excited for you to hear this conversation today. Today, Len and I are joined by Dr. Lawrence Polevsky, who is a New York State licensed pediatrician who specializes in a holistic approach to children's wellness. He's a caring and courageous thought leader who firmly believes in the empowerment of the parent. And we're so honored to have him with us today. The secret this week is children want connection, not attention. Dr. P, we're so excited that you've joined us today. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Great. Thank you for inviting me. I look forward to a great conversation. There are many reasons that parents feel their children became part of the spectrum. And I I don't like to call it autism because for me, it's so much larger than just autism you know, one in five children in our country have neurodevelopmental disabilities. And so the term autism is only a small piece of what that one in five is. So we're seeing a tremendous number of children with um, different neurodevelopmental behaviors, different processing of their sensory input, different processing of their visual input, their and their output and their auditory input and output and different uh, processing of their verbal capacities, their behavioral, their interconnectedness. We can't just group every child with a label. We are very label oriented in this country. You'll see parents will sit around and they'll say, well, my child has asthma and my child has eczema and my child has ADD and ADHD. And it's almost like a badge of honor that they can give you a a diagnosis. And so when I work with children, I'm just looking at their neurodevelopmental status. I'm looking to see, well, what are their issues? What are their issues of speech, of hearing, of language? How do they articulate? What's their motor skills? How's their eye contact? Um, How's their sleep? What's their ability to self-regulate, to focus, to pay attention? You know, are they more adrenal oriented, hyper? Are they more docile and calm? And my job is to help parents understand how the brain develops so that, that you can get an optimally functioning kid. And so there's no doubt that parents initially, when they get the diagnosis for their child, because they need that for services and whatever else, you know, insurance and schooling and plans in school. But there's no doubt that the parents go through a very deep spiritual and psychological process before they actually can raise their head back up and say, okay, I'm ready to do what I need to do for my kid, you know? So there's blame, there's guilt, there's, you know, pain, there's anger, there's regret, there's, you know, all sorts of emotions that parents have to go through. And we can't ignore that as we start to teach 
about the children and what they can use to to help them optimize. And and you know that's important because you know some parents just go head on. Okay, what do I need to do for my kid? And you know that doesn't take care of the parent. You know as well as I do the number of divorces that happen and the number of unhealthy, you know, single parents or coupled parents, you know, you'll see because they drop everything to just take care of the kid. And the kid is not the sole person in life. What's really needed is for the parents to do important self-care. And that includes the interpersonal healing for whatever reasons they believe the child became differently neurodevelopmental. And so that's important. I give a talk on a subject called nurturing the spirit of the child. And so I don't care what neurodevelopmental status a child has. I'm going to still nurture the spirit of a child. And I've had kids in my practice who were fully nonverbal. And I was able to interact with them get them to communicate with me, get them to understand me and get them to respond. And the parents had no understanding of what I had done because I wasn't putting my needs onto the child and I wasn't being demanding. I was being commanding, which is different. Children need you to command. They don't like it when you demand. And I'm going to go out on a limb here, guys. When I see prompting, I shake because it's not something I encourage. Not one child is a marionette with puppet strings. Not one. And so if you're, say hi, touch your nose, pick that up. Look at me. Look at me. What color is this? (laughs) Door, light, book, chair. Like no one talks like that, right? And so I've seen parents do that for neurotypical kids. And I shake, like, what are you doing? Like, are you even paying attention to the fact that your child's not paying attention to you when you do that? Right. Can I just tell you how good that was? Because like, it's so weird. Like you just sent me back like 12 years to an early therapy session with my son. And we're like, no, you can't do that. It's not normal. Well, again, I mean, they're not to be trained, right? 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 And so, again, regardless of the neurodevelopmental status of the child, I'm using a technique that reaches the spirit of the child, and that requires connection. And connection requires the understanding that you are two separate people. You as the parent, he or she as the child. And when you relate to a child, If you give orders or demands, regardless of the neurodevelopmental status, the child won't listen. Do this. Stop that. Go over there. Give me that. Get away. None of that ever works. Eat your food. Go to bed. Brush your teeth. Get undressed. Take your shoes off. Put your coat on. That never works for any neurodevelopmental child, regardless of the status. But for children with neurodevelopmental differences, I hate the word disabilities, but in some context, you have to use them. They require connection much more. Because in my experience, children on the spectrum have been uh, violated in their heart. Their spirits have really been violated. Something has changed their safety in the world. And safety is such, that was one of the big lessons that we've learned um, was when we were able to truly create that safe connection for our son and really see him as the individual and just love on him and have that heart to heart connection. That's truly what changed everything. That's great that you reached it. Yeah, no, and that's where, and I loved it because I was, I had the opportunity to um, speak with Deb Dana, who works with Dr. Stephen Porges, and we were talking and she was saying how autism, there's really four disconnections with autism, and it was disconnection from world, disconnection from others, disconnection from self, and disconnection from spirit. And I know with my son, like he was never disconnected from himself or spirit, but he was disconnected from others and the world. And when we were able to create 
create that safety for him, right. that's when all of the reconnection happened. Right. And that's, you know, that's truly great. when he blossomed. I mean, to have that insight from the very beginning and share that with other parents is worlds, worlds ahead of where we are in the standard of care for children with neurodevelopmental differences. You know, there are many etiologies for children who develop neurodevelopmental disabilities. And certainly toxicity is the big aha, you know, and allergies and toxicities and metals and chemicals and pesticides and glyphosate and foreign matter injected into their bodies that, you know, not only impair their detoxification pathways, but impair their gut and their brain. Obviously, those children, for whatever reason, were vulnerable enough that whatever onslaught they received, they checked out or their brain chemistry and physiology shifted so much that they either disappeared or distanced or said, hey, guys, you know, it's just not safe in this world. And I need you to realize that this is an environment that just doesn't work for who I am. Because what I've noticed over the years is that children on the spectrum are higher vibrationally. They have a connection to the spirit world that's beyond anything that we could ever imagine. And so when you're trying to say to them, door, look, they're like, what? Like, you got to be kidding me. And so if you, and, and this is how I connect to children, no matter what their status, and that is I and you, you and me, we're two separate people and I am in charge and I'm never not in charge. And my job is to provide safety, security, and opportunity for your growth. And my job as a parent is to guide you. And the, the, the language that I use is the children have the road that they're paving. And you as the parent are the guardrail of that road. And we all know that some of those children are going to jump over the guardrail and you're going to do what parents do is grab them by the back of the neck and you're going to put them back on their road and say, okay, go, right? But if you're on the road, they're going to stumble all over you and you're going to stumble all over them. And so I'm going to give an example of a parent's interaction with a neurotypical child and explain that this is just not optimal parenting, regardless of your child's status. So I was on an airplane. I was on the aisle seat. The mother was in an aisle seat in front of me. The dad was in the middle seat. And a two-year-old girl was sitting by the window. And we start to go on the runway. And the girl, I could see that the girl is just mesmerized looking out the window. Pure fascination, which is very typical of a two-year-old. And the father did the following. Oh, we're moving fast. Do you see? We're starting to move. Look how fast we're going. We're going really fast. Oh my God, look, we're going in the air now. We're in the air. Do you see? There are the buildings. They're getting further away. Oh, look, there are the clouds. You see the water over there? There are this, Those are the buildings. We're going higher. And I just, in my you know, New York ease, I just wanted to slap him in the head and say, shut up. <laughs> because... Because he wasn't paying attention to the kid at all. And so what I ask parents is, do you want your children to see the world through your eyes? Or do you want to help guide them to see the world through their eyes? And of course, every parent says, oh, the latter one. And I say, then why are you doing the former? And the, the true answer is both, right? You want to guide your child to see some of the world through your eyes. But ultimately, it's our job to figure out how the child sees the world through his or her eyes. And ultimately, we know that if we can give more optimal foods, 
more organic foods, fewer chemicals, and fewer stimulants into their bodies, you can actually get their brains to settle down a little bit so that you can even reach them further, right? And so children with neurodevelopmental differences need to have quieter stimulation. Now, I've worked with kids who were not doing well because they were being over-therapized. There's constant stimulation, constant doing. Like, you need to have downtime. And so my pearls in that regard is your child needs space to play. Now, I understand that there's random play that's destructive for children on the spectrum. I get that. But they also need the opportunity to have downtime. And that doesn't mean that you're feeding them with things to do and look at this and look at this and look at this flashcard and look at this toy. Did you see this toy? Do you want to play with this? They really need the space to figure out the world in a non-self-destructive way. And that requires guidance and not stimulation and instruction. And, you know, I, I feel badly for the kids who are over-instructed because it really doesn't connect to them. And so the biggest way that I connect to children is, yeah, I know you want this food. I know you like it, but I'm not going to give it to you because it's not good for you. And then you see the tantrum. And I go next with, yeah, I know it's upsetting to you. And yeah, I don't blame you for being mad, but I'm still not going to give it to you. And then you see a little more of a tantrum. And then the answer is, yeah, it's tough. It's really tough. And so that's the continued connection where the parent recognizes the beginning of the tantrum, lets it go into the middle of the tantrum, lets it proceed into the almost end of the tantrum, and then allows the tantrum to resolve without saving it, making it better, rescuing it, or fixing it. Because every child, regardless of neurodevelopmental status, must know the beginning, the middle, and the end of their own experience without it being fixed. And so when children who are on the spectrum have more frequent tantrums and immediate needs for gratification, it requires a greater resilience in the parent to be able to say, yeah, I'll stay with you, buddy, but I can't make this any better. You know, it's no different than a parent whose 17-year-old daughter says, I want the keys to go to a party. And the parent says, I'm, I'm just not letting that happen. Oh, I hate you. You're ruining my social life. I'm like, okay, but I don't hate you. I love you. And that still can't give you the keys to the car, you know, and that's parenting. And you know, as parents, that when your child feels discomfort, you convulse sometimes because it pains you to see it. But you also know that it doesn't last and it won't stay forever. And that if your child has the experience of feeling discomfort, having you there with them as they're uncomfortable, having you connect and support them and acknowledge them and understand them and connect to them, then they will see that you mean business, you're creating safety, you're making important choices for them, and then it resolves, right? And so how many times in my office I've had a 10 or 12 or 15-month-old toddler screaming in the office, just screaming crazy. And I asked the parent, you know, just be with them. Don't try to make it better. Just be with them. And as soon as I open the office door, the child looks, stops crying on a dime, and crawls or walks out. Because I understand that the toddler needs his or her world to explore. Right. And so the regression back to the parent, save me, save me, even though nothing's happening, is not something you want to encourage. You want no trespassing. Like, 
you know, no, I'm not letting you regress. And when you have a child with neurodevelopmental differences, you tend to feel sorry for them a lot more. And that is not helpful for the children. You know, the expression do, you know, this is going to hurt. To me, the subtitle for parenting is, this is going to hurt me much more than it's going to hurt you. Because you have to make those tough choices that allow the child to have life experience, even though they are upset. And it's really you who have to stick with it and say, I get it, buddy. I get it. I know you want to buy that toy. I can't buy that toy for you right now. And so these are real life instances that happen with all children, regardless of their neuro, you know, developmental status. And so we have to stay safe, create that safety. I'm in charge. I'm never not in charge. I'm a person. You're a person. I understand you. I'm in charge of you. I create safety for you. I understand you. I let you know that I understand you. And then I parent you. And that's true for all children. And that's how we will nurture the spirit of any child regardless of verbal skills, auditory processing skills, self-regulation skills. We have to be able to nurture that spirit that is moving forward, regardless of the neurodevelopmental steps. And I, I would love to ask a question because I see this often, especially in um, private support groups online. And I feel when I read certain posts, it's all about my, they're looking at their children after their diagnosis under a microscope. It's like, yeah. oh my God, my kid's left eyelid is twitching or, oh my goodness, the he's spinning his thumb. And it's like, and it, that for me isn't creating safety either. And right. from your perspective as a pediatrician, how would you help parents to kind of maybe not look at their child under a microscope because every little thing may or may not be connected to the diagnosis and just right. yeah. well again i have it has to go back to the sort of original psychological state of the parent at the time of diagnosis because it's still it's like the desire to create perfection out of this tragedy that's sitting inside the parent you know that takes a while to heal if it ever heals at all because you know, you know, as parent, like I, I don't have a child with neurodevelopmental disabilities, so I can only empathize. I can only, you know, feel. Oh my God, what it must be like! The hours of toiling and research. Parents who stay up till three, four in the morning, trying to find every magic bullet that's going to make the child better. When the child really needs your connection, your self care, and you taking care of, you know, business. But again, that description that you give, Cass, is really related to the trauma that's still sitting in the parent's nervous system. And I can't judge that because it has to do what it has to do in order for it to heal and move forward. Unfortunately, it's a dump on the child and the child is like, whatever. Like, and the other thing is that in all of life with parenting, we seem not to have a larger scope of how things evolve with children. Like, oh, he's doing that. I wonder if he'll do that again. Let's see. I'll watch it. Right? That's not a general approach that parents necessarily take. They'll take a, oh my God, he's doing that. I have to call the doctor. Right. You know, because the connection to, huh, curiosity, huh. I've never seen that before. Huh. I'll watch that. Huh. Like that sort of willingness to deal with that unknown and uncertainty is not always there. Even though the child's development is always willing to deal with uncertainty and unknown deep down inside because because they're curious. They're naturally curious and they want to explore and they want to investigate. And so we have to remember that as adults, 
we were once those children who were curious and explored and were okay with unknown and uncertainty. So again, that microscope, sometimes I'll ask the parent, what are you doing? Like, where, where's this coming from? How is that affecting the child? Or how is that affecting your child's function? Or is it in the way? And do you feel that it needs to be addressed right now? The sort of the Socratic method of pulling them out of the hole they've gone into without necessarily dragging them up, but just allowing them to come up the stairs of the hole so that they can see, oh, oh, oh right, right. It's like, yeah, your child is only two. Like, this is what two-year-olds do. Well, see, you spoke to, you just said something that, that I find really interesting. And that's when parents have children on the spectrum, the reality of expectations really gets skewed. One of the things that drives me a little bit batty is this demand to get the child academically on par. And I don't agree with that. And I'm being gentle. I have more significant emotional responses to that, which I'll leave, I'll leave back a little bit. Children are not meant to be taught from the outside in. They're meant to learn from the inside out. And so if you, if you understand brain development, most of the, the trauma that happens to children when they get inflammation and when they get neurodevelopmental disabilities is in the hindbrain. And that's where the medulla and the cerebellum are. And the medulla is your fight or flight response. It's your reactive brain, impulse brain, excitement brain. It's the brain that's high alert, danger, a lot of adrenaline. It's the brain that um, is is, um, reactive. It's the brain that's addicted. It's the brain that has to have things now. And the cerebellum is the part of that hindbrain that's also reactive to danger, but it allows you to move. And the cerebellum is, is muscle tone, muscle balance, coordination, strength, which a lot of children on the spectrum have problems with. But the biggest thing about the, hind, the cerebellum is that it helps with movement. Now, when babies are born, the movement is a lot of involuntary expressions. But as the brain starts to develop forward, the involuntary movements become voluntary. But what you see with children with the differences is that their hindbrain is very different. And so they have a lot of involuntary movements, which are regressive right? Those are going back to the infancy stage. And they have a lot of movement. They can't sit still. They might rock. They might hand flap. They might have vocal stems. They might have jumping. You know, they might have running or, or just a lot of involuntary panicked movements. And the hindbrain, that shows that the hindbrain has been impaired. Now, it could start in utero with inflammation. It can start due to medical choices by the mother. It can start due to food choices by the mother. It can start due to electromagnetic radiation choices by the mother. But nonetheless, I mean, there's plenty of evidence to show that inflammation in utero does predispose the children to neurodevelopmental disabilities later on and neuropsychiatric issues. That is clear in the literature, right? And then the child comes out and has a bombardment of toxic exposures, oftentimes in the form of a needle. And those chemicals will go more to the areas of the brain that are rapidly developing. And that's the hindbrain, the cerebellum. And so that's why And studies show that um, materials in those needles are capable of getting into the brain very easily. 
and causing inflammation. And when they do cause inflammation, it stops development of that brain area where the inflammation occurs. And once the inflammation resolves, which it may or may not, the brain development picks up from where the end of the inflammation resolved. And so you have that gap of brain development. And that occurs most often in the cerebellum, which is most rapidly developing when babies are born. And so that's why you start to see motor delays, because the cerebellum is very vital for motor movement, involuntary or voluntary, strength, tone, balance, and coordination. And the thing is, is that the rest of the brain, the midbrain and the forebrain, receive stimulation from the hindbrain. So if you have a movement, you're going to develop a midbrain experience. And it's only going to be based on what the foundation is in the cerebellum. And so one of the things that I have to do with parents is quiet the hindbrain in order to help their children because the tone is low, the speech is deficient, you know, because speech is a muscle movement. So it's not just speech that you're working on, it's motor tone and coordination, right? And please get the pacifiers out of your kids because the tongue needs to hit the top of the mouth yeah. in order for speech to really develop. And what happens is that the maxillary bone doesn't appropriately develop with the pacifier because the tongue pressing up against the palate will stimulate the growth of the maxillary bone, which will then open the airway and create proper articulation capabilities. So we have to work from the cerebellum and quieting because what we see is a lot of cerebellum and medulla dominance. And the thing is that you won't get learning, you won't get forward brain development unless the hindbrain is quieted. Now, with the hindbrain quieting, is there something for parents who are listening, there's something for them to look into or consider? Well, yeah. I mean, that's a great question because there are many things that feed the hindbrain. One of them is the vision, right? So visual overstimulation is really bad because the visual centers are right near the cerebellum. 70% of sensory input goes into the eyes. And so if you're overstimulating the child with iPads and, and videos and, and flashcards, and you're actually hurting their cerebellum because it sends a message to the cerebellum, we're in trouble, we're in trouble, we're in trouble, we're in trouble. Because the eyes are necessary for the cerebellum to move, right? If you're in danger, you have to be using your eyes to be able to go. And so we have to stop visual overstimulation. We have to stop overstimulation in the auditory system as well. So we can't keep talking to the kid, right? We can't keep giving information. Like I'll see parents say, okay, we need to put your coat on now because we're going to the store. And if we don't go to the store in two minutes, I'm not going to be able to do this in 10 minutes. And like, wait, what are you doing? The children don't have the capacity to hear all that. So I need you to put your coat on. We're leaving. Period. Well, the parents in fight or flight. <laughs> so that's why they're, they're going a mile a minute. Well, again, that goes back to trauma of having to care for a child that they know sometimes deep inside they contributed to that occurrence. And so foods, because so much of what goes into the gut will stimulate a fight or flight reaction because the inflammatory reaction in the gut is huge. And so if there's inflammation in the gut, I mean, there's such an important gut-brain axis. And one of the, the, the sad things I hear all the time is, oh, but my child won't eat anything else. Yes. Who's in charge? Like, who's in charge? 
But you can also create safety with food. And that's why picky eaters like bring them to me because I love like problem solving and leverage what they love to then trade it for something healthy because you have such opportunity instead of, oh, my kid deserves a donut because of his diagnosis. It's like, no, your kid deserves healthy food, especially because of this diagnosis to help set them up for success. Right. But remember, it's coming from a place of guilt. I already know my child is suffering. I'm suffering. If I see my child smile, my child is smiling. Uh, He's happy. She's happy. I'm happy. Regardless of the fact that now your child is running around the room spinning and, you know, flapping the hands like this, you know, and looking out the side of their eyes. It's like, oh, but but that child's happy now. You know, things like sugar are going to be a gas pedal for that hindbrain. And, you know, many of the children are picky eaters because they're being given foods that create a morphine-like reaction in their bodies. And so it becomes an addiction rather than a nourishing. And that's just what the hindbrain does. The hindbrain functions on addiction. You, you, you're going to give me what I want. I'm going to salivate. I'm going to tap my arm and want some more. And so I really want to offer to parents that picky eater often means you're drugging your kid with foods because when you give them their morphine, they won't eat because morphine makes you high. And people who are high, unless you have munchies, But generally, if you're high, you don't eat. And so one of the safest things to do, and I know I'm going to get flack for this one, one of the safest things to do is to starve your kid. Because I can't tell you the number of parents over the 20 years that I've been doing this who say when their kids are sick and they don't eat, some of them actually start talking during the time of not eating. And as soon as they get their diet back, they stop talking. And that's because the inflammatory markers from the food choices in the gut increase when you start feeding them again. And that inflammation increases the hindbrain activity, which then shuts off forward brain development and the speech. And so tell a mother or a father to starve your kid. It's like, Doc, I'm leaving. You're you're done. Right. But in fact, the best way to get a picky eater to start eating is to starve them of the foods that they like and then sit as a family and emulate. Here, I'm eating this. Let them pick off your plate. If they see you eating colorful foods that are healthy and organic and, and in season they're more likely to do what you're doing. And quite frankly, a couple of days of not eating, as long as you're keeping the child well hydrated, is a great treatment for neurodevelopmental difficulties. It's a great treatment. What starvation does is it creates the possibility of the production of ketones. And ketones in the body actually improve brain function. Sugar, while it's a necessary nutrient for the brain, is actually damaging to a brain that's inflamed. But ketones, which happen from starving, will actually help mitochondria re-establish their fuel bases. And then you'll start making the necessary nutrients from the oxygen in the mitochondria, because we know that a lot of the neurodevelopmental disabilities come from mitochondrial dysfunction. And so just reducing the flour products, the sugar, even juices and fruits, like one of the fruits that I really take away from kids, which parents hate me for, is bananas. Because bananas are the highest fruit, you know, sugar-containing fruit that you can give a child, regardless of the neurodevelopmental status. And so if you lower the sugar, and you lower the flour products, and you start creating proteins and healthy carbs and vegetables and whole grains and whole legumes, and you know, gluten-free is often necessary, 
Um, and I stay away from gluten-free oats because I still see quite a reaction when I, when I give it to kids who need to be gluten-free. And so there are so many beautiful gluten-free oats that can be made into porridges, that can be cooked into meat sauces and other, other types of meals with color, with you know different color vegetables pureed into soups and put into meatballs and, and meatloaf and uh, hamburgers and turkey burgers and salmon burgers. And what I see is that parent so happy will see me at the next visit and say, oh, my kid is eating this and my kid is eating that. And my kid is eating that. And I just look at them and say, yeah, how'd you get there? But it was boot camp. It was really boot camp. So it's really necessary to quiet that hindbrain by working through the gut, the eyes, the auditory system, reducing stimulation and really maximizing sleep. And you know, as well as I do, that sleep is a big issue for children with neurodevelopmental disabilities. Sometimes weighted blankets work. Sometimes turning the Wi-Fi off at night works. Sometimes Epsom salt baths at night work. Sometimes it has to be melatonin. Sometimes it has to be drugs. I mean, I don't recommend them. I try not to use them, but sometimes that's necessary. And sometimes you have to feng shui the bedroom because that is also an important piece because children on the spectrum are so energetically sensitive, more so than others. So just the spatial relationships at home can make a huge difference in the bedroom. You slow down the day earlier in the day so that you're not hyperstimulating by the time you need to get to bed. And most of all, as we started with, connection. Stay connected to your child. Okay, I'm going to take you to bed now. Instead of, all right, get into bed. Or, okay, I'm going to read you a bedtime story. I'm going to hold you. I'm going to sit with you. That I-you language. I-you. I-you. As a couple, you know that if, let's say, Cass is yelling and you say to her, stop yelling, what is she going to do? She's going to yell louder and she's going to yell more, right? So why, if you tell a child, stop doing that, do you actually think you're going to get anywhere? It's just going to push them away. Correct. So what would you, as, as a partner, say in a connected way? You would say, wow, I could see you're really upset here but I can't listen to you if you're yelling at me. And that is connection, right? I acknowledge you and I exist. And that's what you do with children, regardless of their neurodevelopmental status. I know you don't want to go to bed right now. I need to take you to bed right now. I know you want to play. Yeah, I know it's tough, but I have to say that playtime is over. That's the connection. That's connecting to the spirit. And if you do that with any child, regardless of neurodevelopmental status, you will get the child to lean in. You will get the child to feel safe. You will get the child to feel acknowledged. Children want connection. They don't want attention. They want connection. And there's a difference. There's a real difference. Connection comes from being able to say, I see you. I hear you. I know you. I acknowledge you. I understand you. I recognize you. I'm with you. That's connection. Attention says, get away from here. Go over there. Go play with your brother. Stop hitting your brother. Right? And that's never going to work. And that's the fight or flight of the parent. And that's going to just create the fight or flight of the kid. Right. And that also goes to the parent relearning how to parent because odds are they weren't parented that way. Correct. And I will throw in here that I learned none of this as a child. Oh, I didn't either. <laughs> In fact, the reason I can teach this is because I had to learn it as an adult as to how to parent myself. If you parent yourself, you model how to parent for children. And, and remember that children are, and it goes back to those expectations, children are just learning. They're just figuring things out. You know, one of the statements I use in my office is children are supposed to do what they're not supposed to do. Regardless of their developmental status, they're supposed to do what they're not supposed to do. That's how they learn. 
So where are your expectations on these kids? They're supposed to pull the TV down from the stand. Be a little more mindful of watching them so that you can prevent it from happening. But they're supposed to do that. It's They're supposed to pull the hot cup off the table, right? Because they want to explore everything. So if you yell at them or say, stop that, don't do that, get away from there, they're not being connected to, they're being attended to. And like, oh, I know you want to play with that. I can't let you do that. One random question, because I know it's true for me, and I'm curious in your practice if you've seen it too. But like when our son stopped growing for three years and was failure to thrive, homeopathy saved his life. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because of how high vibration these kids are. And I was just curious your take on homeopathy. Well, again, homeopathy is a wonderful field, and it works when you have the right relationship between right. you and the homeopathic practitioner. And again, there are different types of homeopathy that are practiced. Blanket homeopathy, again, I mean, I'm a purist when it comes to medical care, and I love classical homeopathy. That's what I prefer to advise. But again, that doesn't mean others are wrong or that you can't be curious and try them. But one thing that I want to say about failure to thrive in children, regardless of neurological status the first consideration for children who are failing to thrive must be gluten sensitivity. Not just celiac disease, but gluten sensitivity. And the thing is, is that the child system won't grow if there's more inflammation in the body than there's ability to grow, right? So you have to be able to lower inflammation in the body before growth happens. And what I see in the children I've worked with, when we remove the inflammatory foods, like I saw a nine-year-old boy this past week who in three months grew an inch from January, 2021 to April of 2021, just from changing the diet because, and who grows in the winter, right? And, and, you know, nine years old, he grew an inch from January to April. And I had to wonder if it was because we finally were able to get his diet changed so that the inflammatory foods were gone and his innate knowledge of growth kicked in because growth is innately there. It's in the computer program. You have to remove the obstruction. And so I'm glad homeopathy was what helped remove the obstruction. Yeah, because it was six, he got 10 pounds and three inches in six weeks. Wow. Well, that's huge. Yeah. Huge. It, so yeah. so what, you, what you can probably conclude is that energetically, whatever obstructed him on the energetic level actually allowed his innate growth system to kick in. I mean, that that's a totally different discussion that we can have. But for, for people on the ground, the diet, the inflammatory input is what needs to be lowered in order for growth to happen. And again, gluten is probably number one on the list. Dairy is often there. Sometimes eggs, depending on the kid. Corn, as you know, and sugar, right? We have allergies to all of those, so they were never in the picture, which made it even more fun, but yeah. Great. Easy, we didn't have an option. Right. This is where we can go off in the conversation about what was obstructing his growth. It was obviously a spirit level tension, like, I don't want to be here, but we want you to be here. I don't want to be here, but we want you to be here. (laughs) You know, I don't want to be here, but we want you to be here. So you were probably working on that level. Right, right. That's my guess. I loved what you were saying too about we discovered in the last two years the elf with the getting the bone to the right place so the tongue positioning which was you know we didn't find out about this until our son was 12 which we were like you know god bless dr bush for calling it out but like those kind of things really matter for kids i'm glad you brought that up because i address it in the office especially as it relates to sleep you know sometimes mouth breathing is because of low tone Sometimes mouth breathing is because of large adenoids and tonsils which and congestion, which is often diet-related and toxicity-related. 
But then sometimes mouth breathing is because of the anatomy that needs to be addressed. It's just something that I watch all the time and, and integrative and holistic orthodontry is exploding for all levels of, of pediatric care and adult care because our diets have been so bad and our dental care has been so bad that uh, we are seeing some really, really difficult to treat oral, facial, and anatomical difficulties. One key theme that we hit earlier is this concept of curiosity. When we work with parents, we term it as a superpower because if you can cultivate that natural curiosity about why your child's doing what they're doing and why you're doing what you're doing. I mean, just that that's your default so much more as possible. And I feel like this conversation could go on another seven hours because because <laughs> I'm really curious about your take on so many items, but we, we covered so much ground today. And I know our listeners are really, really going to benefit from this. Can I just tell you, this was such a pleasure and everything that you've covered are elements of safety and acknowledgement are probably the biggest key messages that we've truly learned and our own healing is really what had our son really connect to us and progress happened after we worked on ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful conversation. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I, I love talking about this subject with parents because it's applicable to any life situation. Doesn't just specifically attend to the neurodevelopmentally different kids. And, you know, I think we're at a stage in our consciousness where in the old days, if a parent yelled at us, we were afraid. And today's children are a different consciousness and they just won't tolerate it. And it's making all of these parents now have to do the trauma work they had from how they were raised and yelled at and that unsafety that happened. Correct. What you're speaking to is self-compassion, and real compassion for your kids who are differently abled. Want to learn how to avoid the 33 mistakes most autism parents make? Get your free training today. Visit autismparentingsecrets.com slash unstoppable.